Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore who Jesus is, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into God's Word and what He has to teach us today. So listen in as we jump into what God has in store. Well, good morning, Rolling Hills Church family. Welcome to all of our campuses today. We're so thankful for all God's been doing in this series. We've been in this series called Live in Love, talking about our relationships, our marriages, or our dating relationship, and how are we growing. And each week in this series, you've heard from a different couple in our church uh, on our staff team. And today, I want you to hear from Chase and Courtney Baker. And uh, many of you guys know Chase is our family pastor here at Rolling Hills and just an amazing man of God. And they're an awesome couple together. And so, Chase, Courtney, thank you so much for sharing today. And uh, tell us a little bit about how did you guys meet? That's a great uh, story. We, we actually met in elementary school. So we were in fifth grade. We went to the sixth grade dance together and we actually have a picture of a sixth grade dance of you really can't see me because Courtney looks like a giant next to me <laughs> because I just I haven't grown into my own yet. We have not been together since sixth grade. We have not been together because since sixth Chase grade. made a very critical error and broke up with me immediately after the sixth grade dance. Man. Yes, yeah. So that, that was the end. Yeah. So we were I mean, we still were friends and we went to church together. We went to school together. And her senior year of college, she came back. And I was in a wedding, and really, I mean, you saw this handsome man <laughs> up there with a tuxedo on. You're like, that's the guy I'm going to marry, and the rest is history. That's how Full disclosure, I did think, he does look a lot cuter than he used to look, and, you know. But it did start a friendship that yeah. slowly turned into much more over time, which was a great foundation for a marriage. Yeah. What is your biggest joy, and what's your biggest challenge, you think, in marriage? For us, it's been wonderful to experience new things together. Chase plays golf. So I decided, you <laughs> know right. what I'm going to do? I'm going to take golf lessons so that we can go do golf together. Like recently, I've gotten into gardening and Chase helped me build beds for my gardening. We've done boxing classes together. We've done all kinds of things where it's just fun to experience these new things together and kind of this emphasis of like, hey, if you're interested in something, like I'm going to try to like lean in and just see, I may not love golf because um, it frustrates me so much, Jeff. I don't understand. That's us too. What are y'all doing with golf? <laughs> like what? I don't get it. But it's just been so wonderful over time to continue to develop things that we're interested in and, and what we learned together through that. And we just had a lot of fun, honestly. On the challenging side, I would say uh, communication has always been the hardest part. And obviously that changes in different seasons. Some seasons are harder and easier. You know, right now we have two small children. We both have full-time careers. So there's a lot of factors at play that make it even harder. You know, it's like every time that you think, you know what, we're doing so great at community. You know, we're really in sync. And then something happens and you're out of sync and then you have to just yeah. keep working towards that. And, and continuing to see, you know what, I was made in the image of God and it's wonderful and good. And he is also made in the image <laughs> of God and it's wonderful and good. And you know, just learning that is challenging and, and wonderful. Yeah. How do you keep Jesus at the center of your marriage? That's such a great question. And I, I would say that it's easy. Like, it's really not. It's something that 
You know, we, we don't wake up each day and say, man, this is glorious. Like, we don't have, this is so easy for us. It's a battle to keep Jesus at the center. We can't just assume Jesus is just going to be there. We have to fight for it. And so a couple of ways, I feel like practically we've done that over time. I, I say pray for one another, but more specifically that, know specifically how to pray for the other person. I've had to learn over time how to communicate needs and emotions to be able to best pray for one another. The second thing I would say, like, just do our best to talk about Jesus. Mm. What is God doing in your life? You can't keep Jesus at the center of your marriage if you never talk about him. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's a, hey, let's, let's find moments throughout the week to talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus to others and, and to our kids. And, and as a family unit, just talk about Jesus. And I would say the last thing might be the most difficult, serve one another, um, being intentional with it. And what we found is not just serve one another, but serve others as well. Make that a part. It, Courtney does an incredible job serving um, at the eight o'clock service with the preschoolers. Um, and just make that a, com- a conversation in our, in our lives. Because the reality is the serving, what we believe connects us not only to one another, it connects us to Jesus. And so we look at Jesus' life and one of the things he, he expresses is serve other people. And, and this is the, we have to let go of our wants and our desires. And sometimes in order to best serve, to be able to go low in order to elevate the other person. I think that's a large part of what marriage is. And as difficult it is, sometimes we've got to let go of our, our desires and our wants and go low in order to elevate your spouse. Thank you guys so much for sharing, man. We just love you personally, just love your heart and uh, the way you love each other. And your marriage is contagious to all of us here at Rolling Hills. So thank you for sharing today. Well, good morning, Rolling Hills. My name is Mike Minter, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here. My main title is Pastor of Primetime. Primetime is for those that are 55 and older. We meet in Rome at 9.30 every week. And if you qualify, come on in. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, today, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Now, I have a couple of, uh, couple of disclaimers um, one is, this, what's going to take place today, is very different than how we teach here at Rolling Hills, and particularly how I teach. Now, I've been teaching for many years. I like to take a text or a few verses and exegete or take those verses apart and explain them and give some practical application. Uh, and the second disclaimer is that um, I am going to be a little vulnerable today, and it's a little awkward to do that in three services I feel like I'm up here in my underwear with what you're getting ready to see here in a few minutes. Um, But we're going to take kind of a deep dive, and there's going to be some things that will be a little bit humorous. But just remember, they weren't humorous at the time they happened in my life, all right? But you can go ahead and laugh if you want anyway. So uh, we're going to work through this and uh, see what we can walk away with dealing with the subject matter of leaving a legacy of love. And the reason I think Jeff chose me for this last message is because I've been a little bit longer than the other staff, a lot longer than the other staff, and I've had a lot of experiences in life, been married for 51 years to my wife Kay, and so he wanted me to be able to pass on some things, but again, it won't be a a deep, deep dive into, into an exposition. But let's take a look at John chapter 13, and we'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get underway. John 13, 
Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Father, thank you for this time to open up your word and to share some um, rich and deep thoughts out of my own life and experience. And I pray that people would be blessed and encouraged by it. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in my uh, life and the things that I've been through in life, if it weren't for people that gave a legacy of love to me, I wouldn't be standing here right now. I, I would not be here. And I'm going to walk you through some of that as I tell you my story. And all of us have a story. And all of us have some things that were, may have been difficult. And all of us have had some things that have been a, been a blessing. My story's a little different, a little bit unique. Uh, and I'll sort of take you on, my, on my, my whirlwind tour here as we go into this. At the age of five, in kindergarten, which was 75 years ago for me, almost 75, my teacher comes up to me. She's gone around the class. Hey, Sally, great job. Hey, John, that's wonderful. And then she turns to me and she says, and she's on my right-hand side, and she says, Mike, do you understand what the class is doing? I was real good in sports. I could do it. But as soon as I walked into a classroom, all the lights went out. And I'm going to walk you through some of my struggles. And as I go through this, um, this was five years old. And then things started catching up with me. I just kept falling further and further behind. And when I got to the ninth grade, I, um, I failed everything. I failed every class in the ninth grade, every subject. I came home with straight Fs. That's a hard thing to do. Just show up and they give you a C. But I came out with nothing, you know. And so I had to repeat my, my grade. And my dad was very, very concerned that his son just couldn't get it. And so he took me to Stevens Institute of Technology where I had my IQ tested. And I never found out it was because they probably never discovered an IQ. At any rate, uh, my, my dad was always behind me, but he was concerned. And um, so from there, I, I decided to, uh, went off to college. So I've, I've failed a year, now I'm in college. I barely got through and I decided that I would apply to the United States Naval Academy, one of the toughest schools to get into, one of the toughest schools to stay in because academics are flying. And unlike Princeton and Harvard and Yale, you don't sleep in until nine, you get up at six. And you don't go to bed till really late, you're doing lots of things, shining shoes, running, all kinds of athletic stuff. And you gotta be able to catch on to, uh, on to academics quickly. My dad pulled me aside and he said, Mike, um, I don't think you ought to apply to the Naval Academy. My dad was superintendent of the Naval Academy at that time. And he said, I don't think you ought to apply because number one, I don't want you to get hurt because you're not going to get accepted. And even if you did get accepted, you wouldn't be able to make it through. He wasn't being mean. He wasn't being harsh. He was being very, very loving as my father. And here he is, the superintendent. So I go ahead and apply. And I get in. And... My dad's wondering, what in the world? Here's what happened. People wonder, well, how did you get in with such bad grades and all these learning disabilities? I've got three pretty serious learning disabilities. And here I am, and I get accepted. Well, I know what happened. Somebody higher up looked at 
at uh, the name Mike Minter. This must be Admiral Minter's son. Stamp, and I'm in. The irony of all of it is that my dad wrote a letter to the incoming class. This was in 1964 to the incoming class of 68. And I go to the mail, and it's my dad's letter to me. And he probably didn't even know I'd gotten in until I'd opened up his letter saying, congratulations, you know, and I'm in, all of a sudden the academy. Well, uh, when I arrived, it was like showing up at the Daytona 500 in a skateboard. I had no business entering the United States Navy, none. And so I, uh, I go in and, and I start in June, early June, and, and my first grades were 0.56 out of a 4.0. I'm kind of in trouble. I have uh, three Fs and two Ds. Clearly, I was spending, spending way too much time in two subjects. And so I'm, I'm in trouble. I don't know how this is going to go. So at the end of that first year, um, I had to stand before the academic review board, and they said, you can either repeat your plea beer or leave. I said, I'll repeat my plea beer. So I repeat my plea beer. And so now I've got a year in college, a failure in high school, and two years at the Naval Academy. And I had a 197. I've repeated every single class, and I'm, I'm barely getting through again. They call me back in. They, they said, we'll let you go on to your sophomore year. I got another 197. Got to my junior year, so two plebe years, sophomore year, junior. I finished my junior year, and they call me in, and they say, Mr. Minter, we've got some bad news. Um, it's expensive for the government to take care of people here at the Naval Academy, and we don't think you'll get through your senior year because you're going to have to take fluid mechanics and thermodynamics. We've appreciated you being here, but you're dismissed. And I left, and I walked across the hall to the men's room, found a stall, sat down and cried my eyes out. And I, my parents were now overseas. They had moved overseas. And so this was heartbreaking. Um, but I, my dad was right. There's not, I'm not going to be able to get through this place. So... A number of years ago, I decided to take kind of an inventory of my life and these three learning disabilities. And they're, they plague me every day. Uh, almost anything I do gets confused or messed up or whatever. So I'm going to walk you through a week, just, just one week of my life and the things that I run into, all right? If I have to um, go to a gas station that I've never been to before, that's a challenge because it's going to have different prompts. And I'll look at those prompts, and here's one of my greatest challenges. I can read. I don't have dyslexia. But I understand things differently than you do. I see all kinds of, of what this could mean. Uh, it could mean you put your card in this way or this way, and, and before I know it, it'll, it'll say on there, See attendant inside. I do that about three times out of ten. I have to go inside, but if Kay's with me, then she puts a card in and fills it up. That's not going to happen to very many people, but it happens to me. Then there's the Google Maps when I'm driving, and I'm okay when it says there's two miles, you're going to take a right or whatever, and it gets down to a half a mile, and I know what's coming up. It's going to get down to feet. And all of a sudden it says 900 feet, 800 feet, and I'm thinking, wait, wait, I missed it. 
Now I'm off someplace, off on who knows where. And that's because I have a little bit of a cognitive delay. I've got about a second and a half of catching on to things. And so that's a problem. We live near the Kroger, not very far from our house. I go to Kroger probably three days a week. When we moved here, I thought, I'm going to learn how to do that, that self-checkout. I don't need to go through the lanes. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can do this. And for two and a half years, every time I do the self-checkup, I hit the button and my receipt never comes out. So I have to call the guy over and he, he, he goes, beep, 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 and then the receipt comes out. And I'm thinking, you know, what am, what am I doing? So the other day, I did it. I found out the button that I wasn't hitting and my receipt came out. Now for, a guy, for you, that's nothing. For me, I was dancing towards my car. Hallelujah, I did it. And I went back the next day and tested myself and I did it again. So now I know how to do the self-checkout. So I also have a two-minute podcast that I put out every day or five days a week. And I have to look at notes every day as to how to, which buttons to push on the computer, all that kind of stuff. That wouldn't happen to most people. But somehow things just get very, very confused. And here's a true story. My daughter Megan said, Dad, you've got to learn how to get an Uber app. You know, you, you travel from time to time, you get back, you've got to, you just don't want to go out there and hail a cab. You need to get an Uber. It's not that hard. You can do it. And so she showed me what to do and get online. So I get online, I fill out everything, and then it says submit. I'm going, you've got to be kidding. Usually it says, you didn't fill out this, and there are lights flashing and red things all over the place. So I, I, I did it. So I hit submit. I was so excited. And they sent me back an email. Congratulations, you're now an Uber driver. <laughs> True story. True story. So I, uh, I still don't have that app, and I don't want to go through that humiliation again. All right? But the greatest challenge I have today is computers. I just have no grasp, but it, it doesn't mean a thing to me. It's, it's, computers to me is like somebody that's tone deaf and going to the Juilliard School of Music. You, you're, you're not going to make it, all right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me at all. And I don't like all the little terminology, the esoteric terminology that goes with it. I'm constantly told about the URL. I have no idea what the URL is, all right? Paste this to your browser. What? The first time I saw that, I actually thought I was supposed to get my Elmer's glue and start looking for something. And so, you've got, the, here's what gets me. You've got a browser and a search engine. What's the difference? One is browsing and one is searching. If they would just let me run the whole computer system, we wouldn't have this mess, all right? <laughs> then the one that really gets me is cookies. Yeah, cookies. First time I saw that, I thought I was supposed to heat up the oven. And I'm going, what, what, cookies? So I, I'm always in the office all the time having somebody show me what it looks like. Now we've got some platform called Bamboo. I have no idea what that is. So I always email in, they go, Mike, we got you covered. You don't have to worry about any of these things. Just don't even, don't even worry about it. So I've got two major caretakers, Jennifer Milligan and Jess Jordan. And their, office, their, their seats are right next to one another. And I come in, not once a week, or three, I come in every single day. And I have, whoever's got a little time, I have to give them my cell phone and ask them, you know, how do you do this? What do you do? How do you, why did I email myself today? And what are these email threads and all that kind of stuff? 
And they're, they're really, they're, they're just great. They do take the time. They're, they're wonderful. But I know full well they can hear me coming. And because uh, I'm talking to people on the way and they go, here he comes. Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> you have him. And uh, no, they're, they're, they're great. They're great. Uh, but it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't connect with me. And here I am living in a world and everybody on staff, the best I know, has two computers. They must multiply because they've also got the one they carry around, the little laptop. Is that what it's called? A little laptop thing? And then they got their phone. They got four computers. Eric Rogis, our executive pastor, bought me uh, one of these little that iPad. I had it for about a day. I said, not doing this. To hand me any kind of a handheld computer is like asking a snake to shuffle a deck of cards. Ain't gonna happen. Ain't gonna happen. So I gave that back. I just got so frustrated with all this. But I want you to know something. The staff here is utterly amazing. It is an amazing, amazing staff. You're getting your money's worth with this staff, I can tell you right now. These are great people. They get along, they're humble. They're willing to help out people like me and other people that come in. And I did this in the last service, didn't in the first, but I think we ought to give our staff a round of applause. They are absolutely fantastic. Amazing, amazing, amazing staff. So after a lot of confusion, when I was 72 a while back, I got a hold of a lady in our church, Alice Conley, who deals with people that have learning disabilities. And I said, Alice, help. So she said, come over to the house and we'll, we'll run some tests on you. And they, 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 she gave me this hour and a half long series of tests, and it was in all the areas that I'm not good at. I was just straining to get through this test. I, I've never had a headache in my entire life, ever. I drove home, and I now have an appreciation for people that get migraines. I had a migraine on the way home. Then I had to go back the next week and do the same thing. Then she writes up a report and says, here's what I've found, Mike. She said, with your learning disabilities, you compensate. You know, if, you have, if your vision starts to go, your hearing increases. It gets better, reality. And all of us will compensate, but she said, here's how you compensate. You compensate by being verbal. You have learned to be verbal to get through life because all these other things just get in the way and they're hard for you. And so I began to realize that that was something that, that God was redeeming me of because redeeming me and because there were people that had poured into my life that cared for me so that I didn't just chuck everything. And now she is coming along and explaining to me that my strength or my ability, because of my other weaknesses, my compensating factor was being verbal. Look what I do for a living. I'm being verbal. And so God was using all these different things to prepare me for ministry. And here's what's really interesting. I want to show you something. Um, the people that poured so much into my life were certainly my parents, my family, my wife, my children, and a lot of other people around me that have known I've struggled in areas and they've come alongside me. This letter, oh, by the way, this is a letter. I know none of you have ever seen one of these before. This is from my dad, dated May 4, 1965. May 5, Cinco de Mayo, I'm going to turn 21. I'd write that down. 
Anyway, here's what he says. I'm not going to read all of it. I would cry if I did, but I'm going to read you the most important part. just want you to get a feel of what my dad's like. Dear Mike, looking out at our garden tonight just before dark and seeing the cherry trees in full bloom took me back in memory 21 years ago to that old Rhode Island farmhouse we lived in when you were born. There was a huge apple orchard out back, and those old trees were bursting into bloom the night I drove your mother to the Catholic hospital awaiting the arrival of David Michael Minter. And then he says some nice things and about me and so on. And so here's a line that literally, I think, changed the course of my life. Here's what he said. I know that you are going through a tough time right now, but no matter what, you're going to turn out on top. If, I had, if my dad had written me and said, you know, why don't you just go dig ditches? You've embarrassed the family. You're, you're not bright. I've seen parents scream at their kids because they brought them all A's and a B. And my dad wrote me this, but you have to know, you have to know the setting. I am getting ready to turn 21. I've Flunked a year in high school. I've been to a year of college. I went plebe year, flunked that, repeated my plebe year, and now I am 21 years old and I'm still a freshman. I'm still a freshman. My dad never, ever, ever gave up. My mom, um, a little bit different, my mom said, oh, Charles, stop worrying about Mike. He's going to wind up on stage someday as a stand-up comic. That's what she thought I was going to be. <laughs> I want you to meet my dad. Uh, here's my dad right here. That's him with uh, President Reagan. And I've got a number of pictures of my dad. I've got him with, with, uh, with uh, JFK just before he was killed. And I've got quite a few. My dad was a very, very intimidating man. Great man. Great father but very intimidating. You didn't lie, deceive, or it'd be the last time you ever lied or deceived in his presence. He was a very, very tough man. And he blessed my life, as did my mother, through my life. But there's a couple other people that really came alongside me. Two that come to my mind. One was my roommate at the Naval Academy, Bob Riera. And Bob uh, became an F-4 pilot. He was a great guy and I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with him way, way back, and he came to Christ. And, and uh, Bob's wife, Cindy, got um, Alzheimer's, uh, and she had it for 20 years. And Bob would go out and visit her. I, I went out and visit her a few times, but Bob would go out and visit her, and he would kneel down, and he would say, Cindy, I love you more today than I did yesterday. And then he had several other things he would say. He went to Macy's and learned how to put on makeup so he could go out and see her every single night. Incredible, incredible guy. Dan, different world. Dan was the elder in charge, our, our chief elder, our leading elder at the church. And we went through a really dark period at Reston Bible Church many, many years ago. And Dan left a legacy of love in my life by saying, you just focus on preaching. I'll handle everything else. He took the hits. I mean, I've seen him cry hard. He just took the hits. His wife recently died, 
as did Cindy, Bob's wife, about just a few days apart a couple months ago. His wife died of, of um, atypical Parkinson's. That's a tough way to go. That's a really tough way to go. So I'm watching these, these men stick it out with their wives. A lot of people don't. A lot of people today, life gets tough, they just get rid of their spouse and move on. But these men were my heroes in so many, so many areas. Um, and then, of course, there's my wife, Kay. Uh, and she, she's known my, my struggles and through it, but she has been the wind beneath my wings for 51 years. My, I've got four children. All are passionate about the Lord, and they're all in their 40s. And so I'm a blessed man with, with the struggles that I've had. I, have, I am a blessed, blessed man. Um, this is a serious matter, this whole matter of, of passing on a legacy by, by love. Uh, but you also have to do it by demonstrating it, by being an example. My dad, whenever we had dinner, uh, dinner was at 6 o'clock. Not 6.01, 6 o'clock. He would always come in, he would take his jacket off and put it down. And my mom at the other end of the table, my dad at this end, my brother and I, and my sister. My dad would walk around, pull the chair out for my mom, she'd be seated, he would come around, and then he'd say, be seated, and he would be seated. And you might think, boy, that's a formal way to live. I loved it. He was even leading at dinner. And one night, he and my mom got into a little bit of a flap, and he barked at her in front of the kids, and she started crying. And he got out of his chair, and he walked over, and he knelt down, and he looked at my mom, and he said, Mary, I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? And then he said to the kids, this is not how you treat your spouse. You think I have not, you think I've ever forgotten that? That is tattooed in my brain because it was an example of humbling himself in the midst of a little bit of a marriage flap. And I, I was so impressed with that um, that it, it just, it really took me aback. And I learned something from it because it's also taught in scriptures. And that is this. If you get anything today, get this, if you're married or any relationship you've got. If my dad had have said, hey, sorry, Mary, I apologize. You know what that is? That's sweeping it under the carpet. You apologize for mistakes. Okay, I'm so sorry. I know you told me to get mustard, and I brought home mayonnaise. I apologize. You ask forgiveness for sin. Make sure you understand those two. Too many people apologize for sin. Sweep it under the carpet, and there's a mound and the mound just builds over the years to the point, if, it's, if, it's, if you're married, you can't even see over the mountain because you've never dealt with it. And if you think asking forgiveness is easy, you've never done it. Or at least you've never done it right. It is hard. It is really hard. Back when my son David was two years old, he, we were sitting at the dinner table, and I'd had a bad day, a really bad day. I, I don't know what it was, but... He starts crumbling a roll, and I'm just sitting there, just, then he spills his milk. I slammed my fist down the table, got up and stormed off, and ran into my room and closed the door. My wife comes right behind me, opens the door, and here's what she said. 
Oh, great spiritual leader. If the church could see you now. <laughs> That's exactly. So I had to go and humble myself before my family and ask forgiveness for what I had done. Um, let me tell you what will destroy. Here's what will absolutely destroy. A marriage, a relationship. Pride, refusing to admit wrong, and hypocrisy. If your kids come to church, they see you raising your hands and singing, and then you go home, and a husband and wife are swearing. There's a lot of cursing going on today in Christians, and yelling and screaming at each other and watching raunchy TV shows. You know what your kids are going to say? Christianity is a joke, an absolute joke. If they don't see that consistent all the way through, the likelihood of your children maintaining their faith is very, very very small. Now let me just make a couple of final statements here. I wouldn't trade my learning disabilities for anything in the world because it's taught me a lot about being empathetic towards other people. It's helped me sharpen my skills of teaching and preaching. It's helped me understand the world a little bit better. I see things other people don't see that are very clear to me that aren't clear to everybody else. And that has been a, a, a joy in my life. And I, as we enter in, I just want you to know the ultimate, the ultimate passing on of love, a legacy of love, is certainly Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. And we're getting ready to take communion here in just a moment. But I want you to note something. When we talk about communion, I'm concerned that, that Many people may take communion and not really understand what it represents. When you're talking about his body being crushed and about the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. I have no doubt that over three services, there are maybe 50 people, maybe 100 people that think that entering into the kingdom of God has something to do with your human goodness. You think that someday you're going to spread out your spiritual letter sweater before God and say, I gave money, I went to church, I was a good person. I, I, you know, I, and he will say, listen to these words, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. You're either going to hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or what I just said. Because your salvation has zero to do with you. If your salvation had anything to do with you, then Christ didn't need to die. Or if we think we can help God out with salvation, that's a slap in the face. Salvation is all of Christ, and here's how it works. The salvation works this way. When you repent, you change your mind into thinking that you're a good person, you'll be let in. What you do is you say, I realize I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I realize that Christ paid the penalty for me. And here's the great exchange. When I put my faith in Christ, I am born again. I'm taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And what takes place is this. All of my sin goes on to Him. And all of His righteousness goes on to me. You're going to stand before God, not in your righteousness, or you're going to be going, you're going to be taking the elevator down. You have to present yourself before a holy God in God's righteousness, in Christ's righteousness. 
So I hope you understand that. If you've never trusted Christ, today is the day of salvation. I'd like you to take the elements, take the bread out. And on the, G the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Father, thank you for the, the fact that your body was crushed for us, as you tell us in Isaiah 53. It pleased the Father to crush the Son for our salvation. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In like manner, he took the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. Until he comes. Let's partake. Father, thank you for what you've accomplished for us. The ultimate sacrifice to carry on a legacy of love. And now, Lord, I pray that you dismiss us with your grace. Give us a day to glorify and honor you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.